Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Chemnitz in Caridian. We'll be picking back up on page 76, looking at faith and doing so in a rather in-depth way, as you can tell. We'll be on uh, this same topic throughout the duration of the class and into next week easily. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, at page 76, question 156. Can man, by his own free will, or by virtue of his own powers, acquire this faith? No. 2 Thessalonians 3.2 is cited, and Chemnitz goes on to say, it is a gift of God. Philippians 1.29, not of yourselves, Ephesians 2.8. By nature we are foolish and slow of heart to believe, Luke 24.25. God opens and enlightens the heart and mind and kindles faith in the heart and a number of other scriptures there cited. Faith is not wrought by our human powers, but according to the working of the mighty power of God. Ephesians 1.19. Which makes sense on at least a couple of different levels. So, point that Luther makes in Bondage of the Will, when he's arguing against Erasmus, is that free will isn't free even from the standpoint of ignorance can't be sitting out in the middle of a cornfield of, in Iowa or the bush in Africa or the rice paddy somewhere else. I don't know. Is all of that racist? Probably so. Who cares? So you can't just be sitting out there in the middle of nowhere and go, I think I believe in Jesus. A word has to come to you to tell you who Jesus is in the first place. So our ignorance precludes any pure freedom that we think we might have. Then, when the word of Jesus comes, it doesn't come in a completely neutral way. Hey, you know, there's this option, Jesus. I'd like you to consider it. There are several pros and cons, either way you go. That's not ever how the name of Jesus is presented. The name of Jesus is presented either hatefully by his enemies or faithfully and lovingly by those who have been converted unto him. And so the very proclamation of Jesus brings with it a persuasive element. There's no, like, I decided to follow follow Jesus or I made a decision for Jesus. In what Jesus? Jesus. Because already there you were persuaded by the word of God so that you got yourself to the point, or you were gotten rather to the point at which you could say, I believe. But So before we even get into sort of this metaphysical idea of faith is a miracle created in the heart by God, and uh, this is something God works in us, before we even get to that kind of elaborate idea, It's just a very human idea of communication. Someone has heard about Jesus, they've heard about Jesus in a persuasive manner, one way or another. So even that mitigates against this sort of idea of freedom. All right, and then of course on the deeper spiritual point, and that's what Chemnitz has been after, quoting these scriptures, and of course Luther gets there as well in the bondage of the will, our hearts are by nature, slow and unbelieving, and to add other scriptural descriptors, 
dead, and hostile. All of the above. So not in any sense neutral. So then how can we acquire this faith that has to be given to us as a gift? And last week I used the analogy of the cup. The cup has to be given to you that it can contain the graces of God. We're so beggarly we don't even have a cup, nor can we produce a cup on our own. The cup itself has to be given before the graces can be poured into that cup. So faith has to come as a gift and a way in which we receive then all the blessings of God. All right, any questions on that? Lutherans tend to do a pretty good job with this article, so no need to belabor it unless you have uh, questions for clarification. So, 157 then, are there then in the activity and exercise of faith no actions or feelings of the human mind, will, and heart, whatever? Answer, the intellect, heart, and will of man of whatever kind they are of themselves by the first birth, before they are illumined and renewed by the Holy Spirit, cannot contribute anything or cooperate in beginning and establishing faith. A number of scriptures quoted, or cited rather, for reason is by nature in conflict with faith. So we've got a couple of really profound assertions here, but the second of which may be the most important for us to focus on. For reason, that is fallen human nature's ability to reason, for reason is by nature in conflict with faith. Therefore, it is to be brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Yet faith does not exist without certain feelings or actions in the mind, will, and heart of man. And this mind, will, and heart, I've mentioned this before, this kind of threefold aspect of the human being is really the foundation of classical pre-Freudian psychology. So you can see this in many of the Lutheran theologians. So where God gives true faith then, uh, true faith then what flows from true faith is these changes in feelings, actions, will, heart, etc. Chemnitz continues, for faith is nothing else than assent in the mind and trust in the will regarding apprehending, accepting, and applying to itself the promise of grace. As for the rest, man cannot by his own natural powers conceive, begin, and perfect those feelings, nor does he have this of himself, but it is a special gift of God who works that very thing in the intellect, heart, and will of man by the power and efficacy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so again, returning to the question, are there then in the activity and exercise of faith... No actions or feelings of the human mind, will, heart, whatever. That is, if God gives faith, then is that just faith alone, as in it doesn't come with any changes? And clearly we see that scripturally rejected. Pardon me one second. I'm going to see if I can adjust this. It's trying. It's just not keeping up. Oh, well. At least I'm wearing black. It would be a little awkward if I was wearing a white t-shirt, probably. Okay. Oh, thank you. I can feel my mind like a computer processor. You know those things are smart enough that when they get a certain temperature, they throttle down? (laughs) I can feel my own mind doing that. Okay. 158. I have to get like one of those white cloths like a Baptist preacher. Yeah. Okay, what do you mean by Freud and what do you mean by... 
Oh, just a sh- just a shift in psychology. Yeah. So classic psychology considers man to be uh, mind or logic, reason, rationality, um, emotion, or sometimes heart, uh, feelings, that kind of thing, um, and then will. So that's the classical kind of construct that develops in the West. Of and you can see how. Psychology is sukeology, the study of the soul. So what is the soul? The soul consists of these three components. That was held. Now, I mean, just as like modernity has ruined everything, um, Freud came and ruined sukeology, the study of the soul. Um, I mean, he's not the only one to blame, but he's massively to blame. Okay. Anything else? We all right? Oh, there's there's a question or comment over on the other side. Sorry to exercise you so early in the morning here. <laughs> I'm just finding it interesting about when you when we meditate on how these questions and answers talk about hearing the word. So it's all about speaking to another person. You just said those that hate Christ say things in a certain way against him. Mm -hmm. Those that love Christ say things in a certain way to communicate what he's done and our love for him and what he's done for us. Yeah. So is it wrong to start meditating on, obviously words have power Mm -hmm. and all of this, you can't get your faith when you sit alone with your Bible just reading the words to yourself, even though you're seeing it, there's some element of hearing a word, having a word spoken. How much should we think about that? What should we think about that? Is mm. that part of it's how a really God good question? It? Yeah, it's a really good question. The the hearing versus seeing, and it's kind of a modern problem because it wasn't all that long ago, and it was a long time in the church, many many centuries, where there's no such thing as a personal Bible. So even after you have the printing press, it's still expensive. And it's not something that your common man has right off the bat. So I don't know exactly when. Maybe one of you does know uh, when that came to be a more regular occurrence. You can even see, I think, the development, though, because it used to be you'd have a family Bible, and you'd write everybody's name in it, and that's because they were expensive. And it's kind of like your investment as a family. And so um, it's, I, I do, I, I, my guess would be that it's a new phenomenon, that you can just Amazon yourself a Bible, and everybody's got more than one Bible. And um, So I think that that's a lot of the emphasis on hearing. I think the technical question of could someone come to faith by reading, now while... Well, Theologians and pastors might have arguments about that. I, I don't see any reason why they couldn't. Um, for the same reason, deaf people come to faith, even if they can't hear. So I think faith can come, to be technical about it, through the eyes or through the fingertips. or you know. And, and frankly, God promises to come through his word. But I don't think that on that basis we should say he refuses to come in any other way. I mean, for example, it is a, it is a phenomenon that uh, many in the Muslim lands have had dreams or visions of Christ and have ended up going to church and being baptized and converting. I, I'm just not inclined to, I'm, I'm skeptical-minded, but I'm just not inclined to look that person in the eye and say, I think you're lying. <laughs> Right, So I think faith can come in all these ways, but God promises that it comes through the word and that's his regular way of working and um, that word preached or that word spoken. And I would try to steer us away too. I mean, I think that there's, I think that there's are many ditches when it comes to this question. One of the ditches, though, is like this sort of word-faith movement applied to the question of faith. Like, it's like as if I speak the magic words, you kind of get this in some bizarre circles of Lutheranism. Like, if I speak the magic words, I forgive you, then that's going to have some magical impact on your soul. I mean, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And the other thing about that is sort of like, if I say the magic words, I forgive you, 
um, I've somehow communicated the gospel. Not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. And as if that were convincing in and of itself. So I think, I think it really does us well to recapture God, God's word and the gospel are always more than human words, but they're not less than human words. And it really, I think, behooves us to look at them as human words and to look at them as having very specific content and context and message and meaning that goes well beyond some speech act theory of the gospel, right, of just announcing forgiveness and then, uh, you know, people are magically converted or something like that. There needs to be a content and a substance and, a, and in many cases, an argument presented. Yeah. Okay, and then other ditches would be that you can argue people into the faith. Thus, you take this wholly human, I mean, that might be the opposite ditch or something like it, just you can argue people into the faith or on account of the cleverness or beauty of your words, you win them into the faith. All of those things are precluded by the scriptures too. In fact, in one place, Paul even says, I eschew the fancy stuff because I want you to be absolutely certain that it's God who converts, not, elo- not human eloquence or human argument. So if you've got those two ditches in mind, you want to steer clear of both of them, I think. Okay, please. Yeah. They did, after the Babylonian captivity, did they find scripture? In, in other words, they're written for. Um, yeah, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, right? And he evidently can read it, but not understand it. So Philip has to go. And then what was the other one? Well, in the reconstruction of the temple, uh-huh. after the captivity, uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know. I know one of the... I mean, that may well be the case. Do you recall, Vicar? I don't recall that detail. I recall one of the reformers, Hezekiah or Josiah, one of those two. Like, they're doing their reform, and part of that is, is purging out all the garbage from the temple. And as they're doing that, they're like, hey... And I don't know if it was Hezekiah or Josiah. Hey, we, f- we found this thing under Agape Hall. It could be important. And it's the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great. So great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ that it it is all a gift is self-evident in the scriptures. It's no magical speech act thing going on on the one hand, nor is it a matter of human cleverness or winsomeness or argument. God works through human means to convert people. Um, And that can take place, it takes place chiefly through the hearing, but also, and I don't see any reason why we couldn't say through reading, through uh, braille, through whatever the other modes and means of communication may be. All right, question 158. But how and through what means does God want to work and kindle faith in us? Surely not without means. Nor does he want us with the enthusiasts. Now, enthusiasts theologically doesn't mean really excited people. I mean, that would be a good thing. We could use some of that, couldn't we? Enthusiasm sounds... Sounds great. But enthusiasts are the entheosiasts, the God within, and this idea of I don't need the Bible or the Word of God or the sacraments or whatever, or pastors or the church or any of this other nonsense. I've got God within me, and I've got this one-to-one sort of relationship with God, and I don't need any of the stuff that God says I need. (laughs) You see the problem? So this enthusiasm uh, is, is a bug of Christianity, not a feature, but a, a true bug and false teaching and false perception that goes way, way, way back. Um, but then in the Reformation really becomes evident in the different ways that the radical reformers are doing theology. 
So the Lutherans are saying, this is what the Word of God says, and the Radical Reformers are saying, this is what the Holy Spirit in my heart says. And those two things are at odds. So enthusiasm is alive and well today. There are many, many who claim to be Christians and want nothing to do with Christ or his church because Christ is in their heart. And oddly, I mean, go figure, he likes all the things they like and hates all the things they hate. It's almost like they've fashioned God in their own image, Christ in their own image. Okay, So surely not without means does God want to work and kindle faith in us, nor does he want us with the enthusiasts to await the bestowal of special revelations and violent raptures beyond and beside the use of the word and the sacraments by private speculations. But for that purpose, he instituted and ordained a certain means which he would have to be the tool, organ, or instrument of the Holy Spirit, namely the preaching, hearing, and meditation of the word. Through this means, God works and is efficacious in man, enlightens the mind, opens the heart, and thus stirs up and kindles faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so I would highlight here for our contemporary purposes... Not only that the word is the tool, organ, instrument of the Holy Spirit, you know, the word preached, heard, but also meditated upon. So our faith is, faith is not only created in this way via conversion, but faith is sustained this way. That's why God has us go to church. Faith is deepened this way. Faith is expanded in this way. Faith in in all of its depth and breadth come from the word of God and have no other source. Now, part of what can happen when you have a really strong doctrine of the word, like the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has, you can start to fall into this kind of magical idea of speech act stuff and this magical idea like, as long as my derriere is in the pew on Sunday morning then the word is going to magically have its way with me and I'm going to leave there with faith created, sustained, strengthened, and I'm just entirely passive in the endeavor. That's an error, and it's not a good way of going to church. When you go to church, you want to actively listen, hear, meditate on, chew on... uh, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, as the colic says. So we want to be active hearers of the word, and we don't want to fall into this, well, since the word does everything, I do nothing. I'm just going to sit there like a cow chewing grass while the preacher says whatever he says, and by magical osmosis, it's going to go into my heart. That's not what's being stated in the scriptures or anywhere else in the Orthodox Christian church. So Chemnitz drawing this out, that it is to be heard, um, but also meditated upon. And the way that this works, is God through his word obviously is efficacious. He enlightens, and you saw that with illumined, back in question 57, the answer. Illumined and enlightened is this beautiful frame. The early church thought of baptism in these terms too. So before we, you know, here in the late West have gotten all into uh, other religions and, you know, sitting cross-legged and thinking about nothing while the smoke of something is in the air, um, you know, just all zenned out trying to get enlightened and all of this nonsense, Christianity truly understood what enlightenment was because we are in darkness by nature and the word comes and enlightens us. And that idea of enlightenment is one of perception, chiefly one of perception. As you become enlightened, you begin to perceive the world differently than you once did. It's the very nature of darkness versus light. How do you perceive your room when it's dark? Well, you can barely make this out or that out. You might be wrong about a good many things. 
Occasionally, I'll, you know, be stumbling around in the dark of night and be very wrong about where the door is and go right into a wall or something like that, okay? So, you know, oh, I see some heads nodding, like this is a common occurrence. Good. It makes me feel better about myself. Or my daughter, when she decides, you know, her own room is too scary, she'll jump into bed, and then she'll want to know if we're there, and she'll do so by, you know, probing the air. (laughs) And then making contact inevitably and repeatedly. So, uh, (laughs) So, to be enlightened, then, is to see more clearly, to perceive more clearly. And there's all kinds of elements of that, but it's chiefly one of perception. So as we increasingly become enlightened, we increasingly perceive the world more accurately as it is. And, of course, that enlightenment occurs through God's word. That's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And our own reason will say, no, the word's got this wrong. (laughs) But that's where we have to crucify that sinful reason within us and say, no, the word's got it right. It's my reason, it's my perception that's got it wrong. You believe that word, you're in due time enlightened by that word, and then you begin to perceive correctly. And of course, you, having put the fallen human reason to death, will then be able to utilize enlightened human reason, subservient to the word, in order to explain and describe why it is that the perception granted you by the word is absolutely true. Okay, so that's the, that's the project, and I think that's worth kind of focusing on too because we've let the pagans have enlightenment, and that's a mistake. We've let the pagans have illumination, and that's a mistake. And it's a great adjectival descriptor, isn't it, sometimes of how you feel when you have this moment of clarity or this aha, this revelation from God's word right on the page or something you've read countless times, you suddenly understand more deeply or more profoundly, more applicably to your life. You're having a moment of illumination. That's what it is. The light of God's word is enlightening your soul. It's enlightening your perception. And it always does so with means, though. It doesn't just happen. It's always this particular word or that, this particular statement or argument. or It always has a content and a form to it. And that's one of the distinctives from paganism, where paganism is just, oh, now I'm enlightened. Enlightened about what? Enlightened about being better than you. You know, that's ultimately what pagan enlightenment is. I've reached a higher state than you. Okay, so maybe, you know, when I'm sitting cross-legged, you should all listen to me. Christian enlightenment isn't like that. Christian enlightenment is always based on uh, the truth of God's word, the form of God's word, the idea and content of God's word. Please. In the context of our discussion, uh, I know some of our uh, other denominations in Christianity uh, place an emphasis on personal testimony. And I recall uh, one testimony of a man who says he was out searching for God, and he was by a creek in the forest, and he was alone, and he prayed, God, if you exist, reveal yourself to me. Uh, and he went on to become a uh, evangelical pastor. I'm wondering, is that, uh, is that a means? Is that a, a you know, um, I just would like you to comment on that and so yeah, again, I, I mean, even though I'm skeptical by nature, I'm disinclined to look a person like that in the eye and say, I think you're lying. So what then to make of that? Well, that's certainly not what God ever says to do in his word. Go out into the forest, ask me if I exist, and I'll show you a sign. In fact, if you go looking in his word, that kind of behavior is usually discouraged, shall we put it mildly? Why wouldn't you simply believe the testimony of God? Why would you put God to the test by demanding that he show himself outside of the chosen means? Sometimes, hopefully not this particular pastor, sometimes people will use this as if to make themselves more special or more different 
or that's rationale for you to listen to them more because they had this unique spiritual... I mean, all you peasants just came to faith by the word, but I had this personal encounter with God in the woods. So you do want to be cautious of that in dealing with these folks because you never know. And if that's what it turns out to smell like, you know, danger, danger. Uh, but otherwise, taken in good faith, God can work outside of the norm. I've, uh, Lutheranism, the scriptures, have no problem with that idea. Just because God promises to work through his word doesn't mean he ceases to be God in, in a meaningful sense. He can do whatever he wants to do, right? I mean, he can speak through a donkey to Balaam. Well, he can do whatever he wants to do. But should we expect him to do that? No, that's to put him to the test. Um, should we be uncharitable to people who say he's spoken to them in an extraordinary way? I don't think we should be uncharitable. We should be cautious, especially given the spiritual milieu in which we now live. I was hoping to get a little bit more clarity on the active listening. Um, you had said when we're in church, we shouldn't be passive in our listening. My past experience was I used to always listen for what I'm supposed to do and what mm-hmm. God wants to give to me, and it was all about me focused. The big transformation now wow. is it's not about me at all. It's about who God is, <laughs> right. what Christ has done, his gifts. So it, it's been inverted, and the lower you go, the more you understand. I don't know. I hope to get some clarity about how we should actively listen. Because most people, or a lot of people, at least I did, came to church to get that big thumbs up from God to me. And that's not right. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's exercises in botching how to do things. That's like what the Christian life with a fallen human nature is. So we can take any good thing and twist and pervert it. I mean, I think the latest iteration in the Lutheran Church that we did for decades and decades, we all thought this was a great idea. Uh, Okay, we're going to even teach our confirmants. Maybe some of you did this. I don't think I ever had to do it. And you're going to listen to the sermon, and you're going to put in one column all the law statements, and in the other column all the gospel statements. Okay, The problem with that is you're teaching people not to hear the living voice of the living God speaking to their heart, you're calling them to identify, diagnose, put down, and um, then ultimately how this goes when you're an adult is you come out and you say, good sermon, pastor. There was more law than gospel. Which, or I mean, there was... (laughs) Sorry, you'd never hear that. There was more gospel than law. You'd hear the opposite. (laughs) So, okay, so what's happening though is through a very subtle shift, the hearers are being taught to evaluate the pastor's sermon as opposed to hear the word of God. Okay. So I'm not saying you shouldn't be conscious of the law and gospel content, especially if you sort of notice a pattern that maybe the preacher's doing all law and no gospel, or all gospel and no law. And you might actually you know, schedule an appointment with him or have your go with your husband and have him schedule an appointment and say, hey, we've, we've kind of noticed this imbalance. What do you, can you enlighten us as to what you're trying to do? Or, what, you know, that kind of thing. So, in terms of passivity, we, I think, want to go to divine service in a, as a general rule. Maybe there's exceptions, but as a general rule, we want to go there not like, hey, God, these are my needs. I hope you can meet them today. But we want to go to divine service as, what does the Lord have for me today? Because it might be a totally different thing. This is also the beauty of praying the Psalms and forcing yourself to pray the Psalms. Because you're going to pray for all kinds of things that you never would have prayed for and that you thought were stupid to pray for. And you're so worried about all these other things that are super, super important that never show up in the Psalms even once. So there's an aspect of God saying, no, these are the things that are really important. Focus on those, both in prayer and in the divine service. So I think we want to go in that sense with a blank slate of what does the Lord have to say to me today? I'm coming to his house. I'm sitting at his table as his child. What does he have to say to me? And with a kind of innocence, you want to just receive that. And, you know, maybe there's condemnation. Maybe there's encouragement. Maybe there's 
uh, relief and cleansing for the conscience. Maybe there's an intellectual content. Maybe there's an emotional content. Maybe there's something that stirs you up or troubles you. Maybe there's something that puzzles you. All of those things are from the Lord. So receive them and take them, but then here would be the key. Meditate on them. So interact with them in your mind. Receive them as a word from Christ. And then there's nothing wrong with turning around and praying to Christ. Christ, this is what your word is making me feel. (laughs) This is what your word is making me think. This is, you know, I'm sorry for my sins. Or thank you for your graces and mercies, which are new every morning. Or I had never understood this before. Thank you for that enlightenment. Help me to understand more. I'm deeply puzzled and troubled by this. My theology can't fit this statement into it. Change my theology so that I, it will expand my knowledge. So there's all this interaction we can have. And we would have it, you know, if a, if a human being speaks to us, we immediately think on it, ponder on it, especially if they say something meaningful. Or we'll stew on that for days. Well, so why not stew on God's word instead and meditate on it, think on it? Like, that's the task. So that's kind of, I think, the mixture of the passivity, where we go to receive what he has to give, and then the activity of once he's given it, engage with it. It's like a little kid. You give them a toy and then they're like, oh, yeah, thanks. And you're like, oh, well, that was kind of a, was kind of a swing and a miss. But when you give them a toy and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm playing with it all the time. All right. That's like home run. Okay, so I think the same is kind of true when our Heavenly Father gives us his gifts. He wants us to take interest in them. And that's, that's where you're really going to have the deepening and expansion of faith taking place. Make sense? Yeah, kind of answer? Okay, please. Um, I'm reminded, uh, we were talking about that this week, Janet and I, uh, in Acts 17, Paul is in Athens, and he's before a very stiff-necked, philosophical, academic type. And he, he says, uh, mankind was created that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward God mm-hmm. and find him. Mm-hmm. He's actually not far from each one of us. So yeah. feel their way. Sounds like a process that we... Is that... Uh, slower revelation that God reveals incrementally uh, and proceeds and gives us more faith and truth? Uh, well, I th- how I take Paul there is he's, he's speaking to a pagan as a pagan. So God has implanted within a fallen, unconverted man, God has implanted his own natural knowledge, the natural knowledge of God, the natural law. These things are there as well as not only things internal, but things external. The way the world is designed. The way certain things are and work. There are places where, there are countless places where a pagan can reason themselves out of certain unbeliefs. (laughs) Okay? You'll even find scientific-minded people Uh, who have come to Christianity relating this. Before I became a Christian, I realized Darwinism is untenable. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about where uh, you can go, before you're even a Christian, you can look at a sunset and be like, I don't understand that a beauty like this could happen other than from a beautiful creator. Right. These kinds of, or you could look at the a newborn baby and have the same, you know, your your own son or your own daughter, and have the same kind of meditation. Like it can't be by, that we're all just cosmic accidents. And there are other more hard, scientific, or soft, emotional. I mean, there's just a whole world. Not to mention the problem of pain. Uh, C.S. Lewis is so good on this, the apologist of pain and pain being God's megaphone, and some of these big questions of suffering and death and meaning and truth and the, or the lack thereof. I mean, all of these things. So what God did as soon as Adam and Eve fell into sin is he got busy redesigning the world in such a way that it would lead us back to him. And that's what Paul's getting at here. So that you would grope, you know, unto finding him. And that's also why the, Paul can say flat out that pagans without the law are without excuse, because they've got all of this testimony of nature, even written within them, the law of God via their own conscience, accusing or excusing them. 
Why did you not seek after God when he made himself available to you in all these ways? See? And so, properly speaking, then, you know, within Paul's theology and theological argument, pagans should be prepared by nature itself, by their own fallen reason, should be prepared to hear the gospel and receive it. If you, if you were, as a pagan, within your own fallen abilities, perverse and foolish as they are, if you were simply a good faith actor, you would be primed for the gospel. And there are, from time to time, pagans that become primed for the gospel, and the church has for centuries called them noble pagans, but we even see them in our own day and age. You can see celebrities or musicians or um, various popular thinkers, and you can watch them prime themselves for Christianity and or come almost to it through reason and rationality. Now, obviously, the word has been proclaimed and preached and known to them, but there's this sense in which they, their own good faith human nature pursuits have primed them to receive that gospel. So maybe some examples are already coming into your head of people like that. I think that's what Paul's after. I think that's the point Paul's making. You'll have to remind me. Cornelius, I think, wasn't he already a God-fearer? Isn't that what it said? Yeah, Yeah, so again, just so far out of context, I may be incorrect on this. Maybe we can look at it more closely later. But that tends to be technical language for a... Because he's a Gentile that's... uh, Yeah, so that tends to be technical language for Gentiles who are at some stage of coming into Israel. So God-fearers... Do you remember, Vicar? Is it prior to circumcision you're a God-fearer and then after circumcision you're in or something like that? There's some threshold... I can't remember. Um, but anyway, that's, I would put him more into the camp of one who's already, in principle, been converted, even though maybe he hasn't taken... So the church has a parallel to what I'm saying. Like a catechumen is one who has faith but has not yet come to baptism, has not yet come to full membership in the church, even though they, are, they have saving faith, right? So it's like they've been conceived but not yet born, by way of analogy. And so... Um, Yeah, I just totally lost my train of thought when that large tank or whatever it was drove by on the street out there. I need to get more sleep or something. I'm very fragile today. It's obnoxious. I hope this isn't a foretaste of the feast to come. If I'm old, I'll just get distracted by anything. Everything. Oh, no. Don't tell me that. (laughs) Tell me that. A few degrees off and I melt down. Car drives by and I utterly lose my train of thought. Yeah, pretty soon you'll just find me sitting in a field watching butterflies. That's my future. Okay, did we get through that? All right. Let. We're okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. Let's see where we left off then. Um. Must be 159. Is that right? Here's the question. But does faith justify for this reason that it is such an excellent gift of God and such an outstanding virtue in itself? Now, if you know the cup analogy, of course not. Because even if you have a cup, is that going to quench your thirst? No. Maybe you could fashion your own cup. It wouldn't quench your thirst. So already we can see that the excellent gift of God and faith as it's experienced within us is not an outstanding virtue such that it justifies us before God. So like, hey, the one thing that makes you better than a pagan is you believe. That's to turn faith into a kind of merit badge, isn't it? And a kind of like the one saving good work. Which, by the way, that's really the problem with decision theology. I mean, we can be sympathetic with how decision theology feels. That's really the problem with decision theology. Because in that system, in the end, when you're in heaven and Jones is in hell, you're in heaven for one reason. You made the decision for Jesus. 
you have faith. Faith is that one virtue that Jones lacks. So even after you kind of get through all the pious nonsense of God's done 99.99999%, you just have to do the 0.01% or whatever it is, you know. Um, after they've tried to minimize it, in many ways they can. It ultimately, though, materially comes down to this. You had faith, and that's of your own free will. That's of your own doing. And Jones didn't, so he's in hell and you're in heaven. You've merited the whole thing. All right, so that's the devil's little trick there revealed. Does faith justify for this reason that it is such an excellent gift of God and such an outstanding virtue in itself? Here's Chemnitz's answer. By no means. For faith does not meet the judgment of God with either our works or any virtue in us, in respect of which a person is justified. Romans 4, 6. Rather, faith itself acknowledges and confesses its own infirmity and imperfection. But it apprehends Christ and his merit and the promised grace of God in Christ and opposes these to the judgment of God and trusting solely therein. It seeks, asks, and receives justification without any works or merits, whatever, on our part. Romans 3.28 and other quotations from Romans. For that reason, therefore, and for that cause, faith justifies, not because it is such an outstanding work of God and virtue in us, but because it apprehends Christ, because it is a cup that contains the wine, right? Because it apprehends Christ, who is our propitiation and righteousness, and relies and confides in him. This is what the common statement means which says that the proposition regarding justification by faith is to be understood coratively. Okay, so this idea then is that faith, and remember, it can be helpful to think of faith as being, of course, one thing, like one coin with these two different aspects, two different sides of the coin, one passive, one active. When God gives you faith, he gives you Faith, you get passive and active, okay? But there are these sides. And we're justified by the passive aspect of faith that simply receives Christ. In this sense, faith empties itself out. This can be seen like under an extreme kind of spiritual temptation where the devil likes to take faith and try to make it obedience to the first commandment, just straight up and crassly. So he'll go like this, like, okay, do you believe in God? You know, do you entrust yourself to God? And through sleight of hand, he'll get, he's going to get you to say, okay, uh, no, I don't, or yes, I do. And you say, yes, I do. And he's going to try to convince you then, well, you've kept the first commandment or you haven't. And if you haven't, then you don't have faith. And if you have, then faith is a virtue within you that merits eternal life. So that's kind of the leverage that he uses in that particular question in that particular way. So one of the ways that you can avoid this through faith, again, is just faith empties itself out. Faith ultimately says, even if I am faithless, he is faithful. Remember that part of the scriptures? So that faith would say, look, there's nothing, you know, this is where the devil will try to use genuine faith, right, in a, in a pernicious way. The distinction between genuine faith and false faith is an important one, on the other hand. <clears throat> but on this hand, he'll try to attack you with, is your faith genuine? Demonstrate that your faith is genuine. How are you going to demonstrate that your faith is genuine? By justifying yourself through the works of the law? <laughs> See? Or by saying, oh, you're right, I despair. My faith isn't genuine, all my works are hypocritical. But faith can answer in this way by emptying itself out and saying, it doesn't matter whether I believe or don't believe, it matters that Christ is faithful. It matters that even if I am faithless, he is faithful. Which, of course, the irony of this all is that that's exactly what faith says. Faith says there's nothing in me, it's all Christ. It's not up to me in any way, shape, or form, it's entirely up to him. So faith can empty itself out and cling only to Christ, and in so doing, it just proves itself to be Genuine faith. And so that is the sort of, remember where Paul talks about the shield of faith that will withstand the fiery darts of the devil. And there's a very, very important example of how that works. 
Okay, so faith is not a virtue that makes us justified in God's sight. Rather, it receives the virtues of Christ, which causes us to be justified in God's sight. So we're on the passive side of faith, um, that element or dynamic of saving faith that God gives. How about 160? But why does Scripture ascribe justification to faith? First, to show that our righteousness before God is not to be built on our works and merits, but that we are justified freely by grace alone for the sake of Christ apprehended by faith, that the promise might be sure. For this is what Paul means when he affirms that we are justified by faith. Luther is so brilliant on this point that the promise may be sure, because if anything is left up to you or me, Can the promise be sure? No. The second we put any amount of contingency, that's the fancy word, any amount of contingency into the question of justification by grace through faith, we've actually destroyed God's ability to promise. I promise you'll be into eternal life if you fill in the blank. Well, in what sense is it a promise? It's a conditional promise. It's a limited promise. It's not an absolute promise. And that promise is predicated upon your action. So then the promise of salvation is entirely contingent upon your doing X, Y, or Z, whatever that may be. That's not really a promise in a unilateral sense at all. So then when God promises us salvation in Christ, He does so without any contingency whatsoever. That promise is to be received by faith. That is, it's simply to be believed. When God says, you are saved on account of Christ, the answer is, amen. (laughs) Not, okay, right, but only if I believe and change my life. Only if I believe and pray this prayer. Only if I, you know, you get the point. Okay, so again, It's not built on our works or merits. But faith apprehends these gifts and things of God, passively as it were. And this also means then that when God promises, it can be sure because we're entirely taken out of the equation. That's why it's by faith, not by any works within us, not even a work of the will. All right, and then second, which is the top of page 78, Second, since it is necessary that there be an application of the promise, therefore, that we might be sure how, when, and through what means it might be applied to us, so that it might be ours, and that we might be able confidently to rejoice in it and safely rely on it as on completely sure comfort. For this reason, Scripture says that we are justified by faith. Again, we can't find comfort. It's just kind of the other side of the coin in my, in my mind. But we can't find comfort or rely on God's word unless we ourselves are taken out of the equation. Right. That's the, uh, that's the goodness of salvation is that we trust God more than we trust ourselves. I mean, really, would you want to trust yourself unto salvation? I can't trust myself to remember my calendar on a given week or to remember to email somebody back. I'm, I, I want to trust my eternal life on myself or my constancy of will. I mean, I've, I've lived long enough to know how fickle even the most steadfast and resolute human beings can be. Why would you ever want to, and, and in fact, you couldn't then ever take any comfort if it's in any way contingent upon you. If you're like me, surely you'll find some way to mess it up. So the great comfort of the gospel is you can't mess it up. Your gods, you belong to him. And, you know, as I preached earlier today, before the foundation of the world, and in Christ Jesus, and in the blood of Christ shed, not just for you, but for the whole world. God has taken salvation out of our hands, and that's the most beautiful good news there is. And then you can also see by way of that diagnosis, you can see where your own conscience, you know, malformed, not operating correctly, has tried to throw in your own contingencies. 
but I'm not doing X, so it must not be for me, or I'm not doing Y, or, you know, so it must not be for me, or these kinds of doubts. All of that's cleared away medicinally by the fact that God has taken it entirely outside of your hands. It's not contingent upon you, one way, shape, or form, and you're his. So that's the beautifully reciprocated in the psalm, I am yours, save me. Yeah, please. John Lennox makes his comparison with marriage and marriage proposal. And this could be applied to adoption, I think, too. There are two kinds of, you could have two kinds of proposals. Just out and out, would you marry me? Okay. Get married. Okay. Or here's a ring, and I'm holding it here. And if you perform well and make all the cakes I want and clean the house and all that, after 40 years, I'll judge whether I'm going to marry you or not. Okay. So it's all contingent. The same could be held with adoption. You Mm -hmm. adopt and accept or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not on contingency. Yeah, right. That was an excellent point. Yeah, it is a good point. It's a good point of how the gospel really shines through all the vocations. And that kind of reaffirms what we were talking about Sunday with these, you know, these decisions you have that God gives you, these freedoms that you have that God gives you that are below you. In the same way that God chooses you and then like, does that without any contingency, the same way is true for our vocations. I mean, you choose a spouse and you don't know if it's going to go well or poorly. You don't know if they're going to be the same person or very different. You don't know if they're going to have health issues or you, know, you don't know if it's going to go well or not. Um, but that's sort of baked into the vocation itself is this aspect of God's love for us, which is a love and then, okay, let's see how you do. Yeah, I still love you. Okay, So good, bad, or ugly, right? There's no contingency. It's all predicated first on his choice and then always remains a matter of that choice. The same is true with our marital vows, right? You make that choice and then hell or high water, good, bad, or ugly, you're faithful to those vows. And I think the same is true, of course, for parents and children. It's just usually more innate. Your children are your children no matter what they do or what path they go or whatever. And you'll love them as your children, even if you completely disapprove of what they're doing, even if they reject God as your father, and that makes it very difficult, etc., etc. But still, it's all on the basis of the fact that they're your children. And so that, too, is sort of like God's love for us baked into the primary vocations. Mm -hmm. And our experience our participation, our share in that love, um, that our joy may be full. Yes, please. Several years ago, I was convicted of my error of that decision theology. But what I have an issue with, what I have an a, a obstacle about getting over is, is there any type of a invitation, like if I didn't see if I didn't see a friend for several years and I wanted to share my faith, praying that he would convert, mm-hmm. how would we approach that? Because I really don't want to say, well, disbelieve, make this one decision, but how do you go about sharing your your faith? Yeah, you know, it's it's art and not science, and it's just going to differ based on your personality, your relationship your vocation to that person or lack thereof, but just to give you like some, take the pressure off, hopefully, with the scriptures. Uh, just proclaim the hope that is within you. Give a defense for the hope that is within you. I, I think sometimes we overthink this the same way you might rave about a restaurant or a golf course or a pair of pants or whatever the case may be that you just think is the bee's knees and wonderful and everybody should know about this. Uh, That's a good enough template for how we should share the gospel. Let it just bubble up out of you. So I don't, you know, again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Sometimes too, I think we worry, uh, Vicar, I was talking with the vicar about this. um, And, you know, sometimes I think we're too bent at it, like, like, I've got to convert this person right now. Not necessarily. You can invite them to church. That's kind of the Johannine from John's Gospel, just to come and see. Don't put so much pressure on yourself that you've got to have this elevator speech that's going to convert them. I mean, I can tell you, and it may be my own lack of skill, but not once in all my years of talking to people about Jesus has someone been like, you know what? Let's get me baptized right now. It's just never happened. So I'm not saying it can't happen. 
God can do whatever he wants, but it's not likely. So why not just let the joy of it bubble out? And um, why not say, hey, I found this great group of people at Faith Capo. You've got to come hang out um, for a men's barbecue. Uh, I, I, you know, I met this great group of people at Faith Capital. Why don't you come have a divine service? You know, or you know how the churches are going to hell in a handbasket? I found a church in southern Orange County that has retained the historic liturgy and that is trying to be faithful. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> Isn't that rare? So, you know, I think that the same way we sort of rave about anything in life is the best way to sort of just rave and, and let it bubble up naturally and let them be intrigued by our own interest and our own joy. Yeah. And then less about conversion as, hey, come and see, or um, inspiring them, hey, I want that joy in my life, so even though I'm clear across the country, I hear you talking about that, and I want that, so that's going to renew my passion to go find a church. Yeah. Those would be my thoughts. So. Above all, make it a joyful thing. can't stand when sharing the gospel becomes an onerous thing. Let's forget that. Yeah, please. I came across a quote that I liked by Hudson Taylor, and it helps as a prelude, and it says, um, there is a living God. Mm-hmm. He has spoken in the Bible. Mm-hmm. He means what he says and will do all that he has promised. Mm-hmm. And I found that at our church. Maybe you'd like to come. You know, That really has helped me. Mm. That's great. Yeah, I really like it. Just very brief framing and statement of the truth. Yeah, right. Exactly so. All right, the Lord be with you.